Welcome to the Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you, and welcome to the Brian Buffini Show. Uh, delighted to have you with us here today. Today we're going to cover a Navy SEAL's take on service. Now, if you've been listening to me at all, you know how passionate I am about service, building relationships, being a pro. And so this particular year, we've been trying to encourage all the people we coach and train to commit to customer service and become highly skilled at what they do and build relationships. And nothing really illustrates that more than someone who's in the service and specifically in the area of the Navy SEALs. The Navy SEALs really have become synonymous with excellence, skill, training, courage. And I have with me for you guys today a good friend of mine, and I'm proud to call him a friend for the past 12 years. He's a lieutenant commander with the Navy SEALs, Mr. Andrew Paul. Andrew, we are honored to have you here today. Andrew, after a very distinguished career in the SEALs, he's now a reservist, but he got in the mortgage business and got into the line of work that we work with realtors and lenders in our coaching and training program. And he found out that being in the mortgage business was every bit as hazardous as facing the enemy uh, when they're shooting at you. <laughs> Nothing worse than a appraisal that doesn't come in or a, an underwriter that doesn't quite cooperate, right? It's coming from every angle. Or a first-time buyer in a set of stilettos who's coming for your life. But we're just going to delve in here today, and we're going to talk about the mindset, motivation, and methodology of success. And first, I want to explore a little bit about your journey, Andrew, as a SEAL and what that actually takes and what that's like. And then I kind of want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your life today and how you've taken all your training and all your experiences and all the dynamics of where you've been and what you've done and brought it into a world that more of us can perhaps relate to in the area of serving our customers. So let's jump in if we can. Let's get into your backstory a little bit. Where are you from? Where was young Andrew Paul raised, and what did uh, life look like for you? I'm originally from the East Coast, and my parents are still back there in New Hampshire. Nice. And so, you know, you got to be got to be pretty hard growing up in New England. Yeah. Weather changes often; the water's cold. And uh, if you wonder if you don't like the weather, they say just wait a few minutes; it'll change. <laughs> Very so, similar to Ireland, huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you grew up there. Were you a sporto kid? Were you into everything? Always into sports and athletics, although not in my immediate family. So many of the people in my family served in the military. It, mm -hmm. it really started with a kind of probably the patriarch was my grandfather was a B-17 pilot in World War II. Mm. And it's amazing when you think about what we asked of that generation. I mean, he, he went into the, originally was the Army Air Force, which later became the Air Force, flew something like 20-plus combat missions by the time he was 20 or 21 years old. Jeez. So that was kind of what the environment that I was raised in, although my mom and dad were not in the military. My uncles, cousins, Air Force, Navy Seabees, retired submariner, master chief. So raised with that idea of service right. and serving in the armed forces. Nice. Now, your dad, I met your dad. You took me yeah. shooting with your dad one That's time, right. which was a hoot. What's your dad do for a living? My dad is a physician. He's a hematologist, oncologist. Yeah. And it's just cool. I mean, he's been living his passion for years. I mean, he, he is in his 70s, still actively practicing and helping people navigate a real challenging part of their life. And his skills are just amazing, you know, after you've seen so many things. So he's a hematologist on college, mostly for you don't know, blood and cancer. Sure. Yeah. Growing up in New England, kind of into sports, got all kinds of military influence around the family. The dad's a doc. And so how did you end up 
deciding you wanted to pursue a career in the military, where was that born? Yeah, at a young age, you know, as you look back, it, it probably starts as a little bit less informed. You know, mm-hmm. I probably saw a cool movie. Yeah, right. that looks really neat. <laughs> you know, so it starts there. You know, and obviously it matures as you learn more and, and you grow as a person. But it started there. I mean, influence, of course, with so much family uh, being in the military. Yeah. Saw a cool movie, probably thought that looks really awesome, and then I kind of started to get to this idea. Well, I mean, if I'm going to go do this, I want to be the best. And look, you know, no disrespect to all the services out there. As a kid, as a teenager, I just thought, well, the Navy SEALs must be the best, so that's what I want to do. Sure. That's where it started. Yeah, you know, you had that goal in mind for a long time. I did, yeah, in high school. I mean, it really came to fruition. Like, I want to be a Navy SEAL when I was in high school. Now, is that something you verbalized? I mean, New England's a lot like Ireland. I would imagine there was a lot of people. You're not exactly uh, six foot five, and right. you look differently than most people would perceive right. a, a seal to be. Did you take a lot of flack? Absolutely, and you know that's something I share with folks. You know, I mean, for those of you listening, you can't see it, but I mean, I'm five seven, hundred and fifty five pounds. My dad's maybe five six. You know, and whenever you have a large goal or something really tremendous that you want to reach for, there's always going to be people who are going to be naysayers. Yeah, and the real challenge is that. Oftentimes, the people who are talking down or giving you advice are people who have no experience or wisdom or knowledge in that area. So, I mean, senior year in high school, I was working at a bar, okay? And uh, one of, like, the head bouncer, you know, was like, well, you couldn't be a Navy SEAL because, you know, when you go through that training, you know, there's just so much lactic acid that gets built up in your muscles and... Now he's giving you a science. This is right. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> and, and, he's a bouncer at a bar. That's right. But he actually plays a doctor on the weekends. That's right. But your yeah. your muscles aren't large enough to absorb all of the lactic acid like mine are, right? <laughs> I mean, this is like the kind of thing you get, right? right? Yeah, yeah. But even, Brian, well-meaning people, mentors, people who, who really do care about you. Yeah. You know, I had one guy pull me aside and he says, Andrew, you know, listen, I, just, you know, I want to talk to you about this. A great naval officer, maybe, but, I mean, a Navy SEAL? I mean, come on. And that was a well-meaning person. And that's the truth of anybody who sets out to do their dreams. I mean, I've said the story many times. When I first decided to do the speaking, Beverly had seen me, you know, volunteer my time. And she says, you got to do this. You got a gift. You got to do this. My dad, who's my biggest fan today, he tried to talk me out of this like you can't imagine. Well-meaning. You you know, these guys are on the road all the time. They lose their marriages. They do this and that and the other. It's a, you know, it's a train wreck and... I had a pastor come and tell me, you know, and just like, and really challenge me. And it just, you know, it's not about not listening to feedback because you can get into trouble doing that. Right. But the other side is like, once something's lit in your heart, it's like that tuning fork experience. Yeah. You got to go for it. But it is amazing how many people will be so vocal who themselves are kind of stuck in their life. That's right. And how many people listening to this, you might be setting a goal or you have something on your bucket list you want to achieve and you'll have a whole bunch of people lined up telling you you can't do it. That's your right. Your muscles aren't big enough. Right. You're not <laughs> tall enough. You're right. right. And they don't know anything about being in the yeah. SEAL team. Right. Right? Right. Yeah. So you got to be careful about that. So you went to school, went to Vanderbilt, was it? Yeah. It's a funny story. You know, of course, my parents wanted me to go to college. Yeah, right. Of course. And not that I didn't want to. So I started looking at colleges. Didn't know anything, Brian, about how to even go into the military. Didn't know the difference between officer enlisted, mm-hmm. even though I'm surrounded by these family. My parents didn't teach me any of this. Yeah. And where I went to high school, they didn't have any of this. So I go down and I'm looking at colleges and I'm looking at Vanderbilt University, which is ultimately where I ended up going. Kind of walk into this big conference room kind of a setting where they're kind of showcasing all the things you can do in college, right? And I see a guy standing there in uniform. And 
I think, okay, that's kind of neat. So I go over, and, and of course, he's got right on the desk. He's got the picture of the Navy SEAL <laughs> doing the OTB, over-the-beach operation, you know, Drager, rebreather, suppressor with a laser, you know. Right. So, well, that's the advertisement, right? Yeah, right. And so what's this all about? You know, because I want to be a Navy SEAL. And he goes, oh, well, this is ROTC. I'm like, well, what's that? Pam, look, I don't even know. He goes, Reserve Officer Training Corps. And I go, what's that? He goes, well, yeah, if you go into this program, the Navy pays for college. And uh, then afterwards, you know, as a payback, you go in, in the Navy for four years. Mm. So, so can I uh, be a Navy SEAL through this program? Oh, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> no problem. No problem. Sign here, young just, man. <laughs> just straight up, yeah. So, you know, so that was it. So I was like, oh, well, great. That's the day I found out about it. So I, that's what I did. I went ROTC, got yep. a scholarship. I went to Vanderbilt, graduated with an engineering degree, studied all kinds of computer engineering circuits and things like that, and yep. then promptly commissioned in the Navy and never used any of that ever again. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That right. happens. So then talk us through becoming a SEAL because at that time you probably didn't know how difficult it was for an officer right. to get into the SEALs, which is far harder than enlisted men getting into the SEALs, and it's almost impossible for the enlisted guys to get in. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the challenge, right? I mean, again, not knowing, and, and these days there's so much more information out there, but at the time, this recruiter was like, oh, yeah, you can do this. It turns out, and I don't really find out or learn this until, you know, year two <laughs> into the, I'm already committed, right? Yeah, I mean, right. I'm in, in college and owe oh, the Navy, and, and then sort of find out that really they only take, at that time, about 16 officer candidates from ROTC units a year. Just to even go to BUDS. And that's from all over the country. That's right, from all over the country. how many ROTC? I don't know, but I want to say probably 30 plus schools. And Mm -hmm. and so at that time, it was roughly 16 to 20 plus slots that were reserved for the Naval Academy Mm -hmm. and about 16 slots a year for ROTC candidates. And so just statistically, you know, although I worked extremely hard, had really great what we call PT numbers, sealed entrance test numbers, it just statistically, the odds of me picking up a slot were really small. So that was a huge hurdle. Mm-hmm. You know, my mindset was, is like, look, just give me a shot. Right. Just give me a shot. Let me go to Coronado and test my metal and show you what I got. And if you decide that I don't cut it, fine, but let me go. Right. And fortunately, I, I did pick up a slot. Which is, again, very, very rare, needle in a haystack type stuff yeah. to get in. Yeah. So talk to us through the process of, as you well know, I mean, in San Diego... The SEALs are not such a mysterious group because here and Virginia Beach are the two places the SEALs are based. Right. But it's a very mysterious thing to people all over the country and and all over the world. And now, of course, it's become a symbol, I think, of obviously special warfare, all the movies that are made, all of the shows that are made. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole deal around being a Navy SEAL today, but it's still somewhat of a mystery to a lot of people. Yeah, It's a lot grittier than even people know. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, this whole dynamic of BUDS, because people think BUDS, from what I talk to them, they think Hell Week. Right. And they think BUDS is like one really bad week, and if you can survive the week, you're kind of good to go. But it's only one of many, many weeks, isn't it? Talk to us a little bit about becoming a SEAL and and a little bit what that's like, and then maybe we talk a little bit about Hell Week, too. Yeah, sure. And if you don't mind, I mean, you kind of mentioned, you know, talking about it and uh, a little bit of mysterious stuff. You know, there is within our code, the concept of being the quiet professional. Mm-hmm. And, and years ago, I mean, nobody would even do something like what I'm doing here today. Sure. You know, and it's with, to be honest, it's a catch-22 for me. I feel torn in two directions about even just kind of going into a public setting and, mm-hmm. and sharing this kind of information and talking about the stories in the background because it is meant to be a private community. We don't do what we do for our own fanfare or accolade. 
But, you know, the reason I do this type of thing, you know, and again, thank you for having me here today, is is because of just so many of the great men that I served with who are no longer with us. Mm-hmm. My hope is that I can honor their memory and their legacy. And in that, what we can learn from what some of these great men have done, what they've given, mm-hmm. my hope is that it can inspire others. Well, and you've been, you know, as long as I've known you, you've been very consistent with this. And I've been talking to you for quite some time before coming yeah. and getting you to do this. But it is powerful. And it's powerful because... It's kind of mind over matter. I mean, I've been there myself, and I've seen 190 guys show up for the first day of Bud's training, and every one of them looks like Captain America. Yeah. And, you know, 20 of them played Division One football and right. this and that. Or everyone's a stud. I mean, you right. have to have the physical test to get what's called a bid, right, or a, um, a contract. Right. And you have to be kind of a stud to get in in the first place. And I remember I've been down there several times, and I'm looking at the first day of training, and I go, None of these guys are going to quit. Like, there's not a chance right. any one of these guys yeah. will quit. But you can't pick them out of a lineup. You cannot. I've talked to some of the commanders. We sponsor a lot of different charitable foundations for Navy SEAL families and so on and so forth. And, you know, the commander, 25 years there, saying, I couldn't tell you. Right. Not by what they look like, not by the right. muscle definition, not right. by their background. And, and believe me, they've been trying for years, right? right? Because if they could make the program more efficient and pick the right guys to begin with, yeah. obviously that'd be great. But kind of to your question about what that's like, the reason it's like that is because all these guys are in great shape. I mean, if you show up out of shape, you just, I mean, you ain't got to play. Yeah. yeah. But it becomes so demanding that it is a mental game. Mm-hmm. Everything is mental. In so much of our life, our business, you know, for me, post-military, it, you know, the mind is the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And that's what it really becomes. So I don't care what shape you're in, the length of the program and all the different stuff that they'll kind of do to you, Mm -hmm. you will get to a point where you are so tired that it has to become a mental game for you. Mm -hmm. And so for the guys who are there, because like, hey, man, this is cool. Like, I want to do that. I want to jump out of planes and I want to blow, you know, things up and make things go boom. You know, man, a couple days into hell week or when it's really cold or you're out in the middle of nowhere and you're trying to find your way and you can't and you don't got yourself turned around and and you literally are shivering and it's colder than it was even on the beach in hell week the cool factor is it goes away yeah and the only reason you keep going is because there's something deeper inside a deeper purpose and meaning behind why you are there today yeah and that's ultimately what it takes give us an example for those uh wimps that uh (laughs) will drive by coronado and if it's 65 degrees won't get in the water i qualify all day long (laughs) so give us an example like to talk about hell week itself Give sure. us an example of what a 24-hour period in Hell Week is like. Yeah, well, you just you never go to sleep, basically. You yeah. know, so I mean, it, Hell Week is, uh, of course, over five days, and you get about two and a half hours of total sleep for the week. Mm. The idea, obviously, of course, is that as you become more and more tired, you just have less and less mental fortitude to put up with stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you add the cold, and they're feeding you plenty. There's no like food deprivation. Mm-hmm. You know, there's yeah. definitely sleep deprivation. Yeah. But it's little things, too, that you don't even realize. I mean, you know, the chafing that just from the sand on the right. inside of your legs, right. you know, the blisters, and, you know, we're running around with the boats on top of our head, and, you know, you're rubbing the crown of your head raw. Right. You see and, all these bald kids uh, running seriously. around San Diego, right? That's right. <laughs> they all look like Friar Took. A year or two later, they, uh, you know, the hair starts to grow back, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's cold, and, and man, the cold gets most people, mm. uh, honestly. And, and obviously, you're going through training different times of the year. And so the instructor, I mean, they've got this down to a science, man. I mean, from the outside observer, it can look a bit chaotic. Yeah. These guys know exactly what they're doing. Mm. They know exactly how long they can put you in right. before they got to take you out and how long you got to be out, given the outside air temperature for they can put you back in. Right. They know they got it down. And you're running 
miles and miles on the beach. You got the miles. boats on the head. You've got yeah. the log work with these right. big giant logs. You got to right. pick up and you get splinters all up and yeah. down your arms and above your head. And, and, just and the breaking teamwork. you the whole time. In the teamwork piece of it too. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, you're in a boat crew, and so going through SEAL training. You know, one of the lines is it pays to be a winner. Yeah. And so everything's a competition. Mm. You're constantly racing. So, you know, imagine you got 10, 12 boat crews, about uh, seven, eight, depending on the division, guys in one of these rubber boats. And we're doing races up and down the beach. And so the kind of way it goes is it's like, all right, well, you know, teaching you a couple things. First of all, attention to detail, and it pays to be a winner. Mm-hmm. So they'll say, okay, you see, you know, that clump of seaweed, you know, a quarter mile down the beach. Run down there, you know, carrying the boat at low ready. When you get around the clump, put it on top of your head and then run back and then come back and dress your boat up and report. And the winner of that race gets to rest and sit out the next race. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the second place team gets to stand there. Third place gets to stand there with the boat on the head and everybody else gets their butt kicked. Yeah. And then they do another race. Yeah. And so, you know, really does pay to be a winner because, mm. you know, you're rested now and you start winning again and right. again and again. And life has a certain way of having that kind of momentum. Mm. And then they start throwing in little games, you know, like attention to detail stuff. So they'll say, um, all right, next race. See that seaweed clump over there? Okay, uh, run down there, touch the seaweed clump, and get back here. Everybody takes off. No, they didn't say to take the boats. Mm. All right, so off we go. Now, it's funny how these games, these mental <laughs> games go. So I'm like, guys, put the boats down. Let's just run, you know. Mm-hmm. And they're like, no, what about those? I didn't say take the boats. Let's go. So we run down there. We come back. I'm risking it here. Yeah, right. These are the kind of games they play, right? Ensign Paul, why didn't you bring your boat? Well, you said run down there, touch the seaweed, and come back. You didn't say to bring the boat. They're like, and all of a sudden, the instructor's like, that's right. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> Somebody's paying attention around here, gentlemen. Pays to be a winner. Attention to detail. Right. Great job. The rest of them got to go do it again. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So they're just they're trying to break you down the whole time. They're breaking you down physically. They're breaking you down mentally. They're breaking you down emotionally. I mean, guys, oh, yeah. that have, this has been their dream for forever, forever, forever. I've seen this happen. Mm-hmm. And they come walking up, and they, and they make you ring a bell. Right. You yeah. got you to put your helmet down, and so you got to ring a bell three <laughs> times. So I hear. So I hear. You know, I even to this day, you know, it's just down at the commissioning of the USS Monsoor, and uh, they had a bell there, and they invited us to ring out. I don't know if I could bring myself to ring this <laughs> thing. You know, that's what you do. And, and, yeah. and when you're going through buds, for those of you who don't know, when you are ready to quit, there's only two ways you don't make it. You voluntarily quit. Yeah. Or you get injured and, and they pull you out. Mm-hmm. You can be performance dropped, and that happens too if you don't make minimum times and things like that. But when you're ready to quit, you got to go up and you got to ring the bell, take your helmet off, and you set it down. And as the class is progressing, they leave the helmets out there. Mm-hmm. They got your name and your class number on. You can go down the line and see just how many people have rung out and, and right. they didn't make it. You know, I gained power from that, not mm. the other way around. Mm. You know, when somebody wouldn't make it, somehow it, it gave me energy to keep going mm. more. Not at all from a perspective of, like, laughing at that guy's sure. misfortune, yeah. but just more like it inspired me that yeah. I'm still here and You're I'm going to keep here. going. Yeah. So a typical class, let's say 190 kids go in. What's a typical yeah. class to graduate? Typically, you see numbers in the 30s, typically. Yeah, yeah Crazy. pretty common. And those are all studs yeah. that are athletically way good enough to be Navy SEALs. And you said these guys have it down to a science. They know what they're looking for. What is it they're looking for? I would say, having never been an instructor there, but I think more than anything, it's a grit. It's a never-quit attitude. Mm. And ultimately, the instructors that have been carefully selected, who have done multiple platoons and are now coming back to kind of have what's called a shore duty and work at the Naval Special Warfare Center, they also are looking at, is this somebody that, if I had to go in harm's way, like after my tour as an instructor, I'm going back to a platoon. Mm. And if that guy is in my platoon, do I feel good about that? 
Do I believe that if I have to go into harm's way and into combat, that I feel good with that guy carrying a rifle behind me, he's got my six, that he's, he could pull me out yeah. of a firefighter, I'd pull him and vice versa. And, and one of the most unusual parts about the Navy SEAL training, like you're in as an officer. Right. The guy who's your instructor has usually got a lower rank than you. Sure, yeah. And he's beating the living tar out of you every day. Yeah. And you're going to be his boss. That's right. And so I can imagine for that guy, he's got to think, is this the guy who I'd want to see as my leader in the SEAL teams? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot that's expected of officers who are going through. Yeah. It's more than just, can I make it? Right? It's, I got to make it. Now, I'm not carrying anybody through training, mm-hmm. but I got to make it and also do it in a way where I'm not being selfish mm-hmm. in my own preservation. Right. Because that's just not what leaders do. Typical length from the time you start till the time you graduate is what? Well, BUDS is right at about six months, yeah, which is just the beginning. Yeah, You know, I've been asked in the past about different thoughts on SEAL training and becoming a SEAL. And, you know, the challenge is, is that all the public sees is what's on TV. And, yeah, right. and that's good. It's good to get a little taste. Sure. Okay. But the reality is, and, I, and this is what I, I've said before, and I'll say it again, the SEAL training is, it's much more than just, you know, the ultimate tough mutter, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think some people look at it and they go, man, if I could make it through that. Mm-hmm. But it's it's so much more than just did right. you just make it through Because it's the, a lifestyle from that point on. It's a lifestyle. Yeah. It's your ethos. It's who you are. It's it's not just can I grit it out. We also say it's one thing to be a Navy SEAL, so you made it through and got the trident. Mm-hmm. It's also another thing to be a brother or a team guy. Right. Okay, and there is a difference. Yeah. You could be tough or stupid enough to not quit. But that's just the beginning. You get your trident. Okay, now you're a Navy SEAL, but you show up at the platoon and, you know, you're just an FNG. You know, so why, new guy. why did Andrew Paul make it through? Well, I thought often about other people. That's really what it was. Mm-hmm. And as corny as it may sound, you know, I have had, when going through hard things or challenges in my life, one of the things that I've been able to do is I'm able to create like these sort of false mental scenarios that pushed me, mm. right? So one of the ones that I would think about that was made up was I would just imagine an innocent person being held hostage in some faraway village. Like, you know, and again, it's a fantasy sure. from a movie, yep. right? But I could create these mental images where this person was in pain and legitimate, absolute, imminent death by an evil person mm-hmm. who was, if they didn't get paid or whatever, would execute or even torture this person. So when I was in pain... And I had to keep pushing through. I just imagined that this person's life depended on me. Mm-hmm. And I had to keep fighting and fighting and even crawling through whatever pain or agony mm-hmm. to get there because I might be the only one. And that's just how I that's, pushed and myself. And that's how you motivated yourself. Correct. And again, depending on how a person's wired and so on and so forth, I, I love the idea of creating a picture. For some people, it's I don't want to let a family member down. For some people, it's yep. I have this aspiration of who I want to be and where I want to go. Something that's well worth taking a look at is the documentary series on it years ago. <laughs> and it was uh, Class 2, 3, 4. A lot of things have changed. It's so funny that you say years ago because that came out, oh, about one month before I showed up at Bud's. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, yeah but I, if, yeah. if you go to YouTube, you go check out Class 2, 3, 4. Yeah. It's longer and harder, more difficult now. But boy, it was inspirational to me. I think it was harder back then. It's, it's easier. Now, my class was the last hard class. Yeah, right. You know, that's just, and by the way, know. every SEAL I've met in the last right. 20 years has said that. My <laughs> right. class was the hardest class. That's right. So now you got the Trident, now you're in, but that's only the beginning. It's just the beginning. And how long was it before you were actually deployed? My first deployment, full deployment to Iraq was in 2004, 2005. 
So it's a couple of years by the yeah. time you go through training. And, and, and by the way, when I was going through BUDS and through Hell Week, I actually got pneumonia in Hell Week the right. first time and was pulled out, much to my own frustration and disappointment, I had to start all over again. Right. And so that kind of set me back a little bit of time. So first deployment, Iraq, 2004-2005 time right. frame. First son born on that first right. deployment. Great. And how many deployments did you see altogether? Two full cycles and one another kind of short support right. one. Yeah. So nothing probably prepares you quite for that. I mean, as as well trained as you were, and all of a sudden you're you're prepared tactically, you're prepared skill wise, mm-hmm. but now you're in the deep waters. In fact, I know there's been a number of movies that were made of missions that were you are part of, and so on and yeah. so forth. Some pretty hardcore stuff. Brian, honestly, there's so many talented, skilled, incredible operators, not just in the SEAL teams, but brothers in the Army and the Marine Corps. I was fortunate, and we say fortunate in our world, that I was in the right place at the right time. I mean, if you're an operator and you want to go forward and this is what you felt called to do, mm-hmm. you want to go to battle. You're like, put me there. I'm the man to stand in the gap. Mm-hmm. You know, where evil is, send me. Mm-hmm. And so I was fortunate to be in the right place at the right time, With uh, particularly in my last deployment. We got to see a lot of combat. We got to make a big difference. But I would tell you that that. I felt very prepared. Uh, instinct, just training and repetition mm-hmm. over and over and over again. You know, the the movies and the TV shows, and I mean, I guess there's a TV show out there now about this stuff. It just shows the cool stuff. Mm-hmm. And we have a saying, it's that everybody wants to be a frog man on a Friday. <laughs> right? You know, when yeah. it's sunny out, you're doing the cool <laughs> workout. What you don't see is all the difficult, painful right. d- stuff in between, the time away and, and all that. But I felt very prepared. Well, they say you practice in peacetime so you don't bleed in war. That's right. And, yeah. you know, we talk about this, and we're going to talk about service here in a minute. But, the you know, the mindset motivation methodology, the mindset has got to be locked in to just get through the process. All the negative relatives, all the family members, all the bouncers at the bars, right. <laughs> everyone you meet, here's why you can't be a SEAL. And then you get there, and their job is to weed you out. Their job... That's right. Imagine this. I mean, most of us don't have careers where somebody's job is to get you to quit. Yeah. Their job is to get you to quit. And then once you don't quit, yeah. their job is to get you to become as the most skilled mm-hmm. in the world at what you do. That's and right. it's repetition, drill. Talk a little bit about that dynamic because we have a lot of folks, we're always challenging people to be more professional about what they do, to be a better pro, more skilled. What's the Navy SEAL mindset towards acquiring and keeping skills? Well, you're going to fall out of your chair when I say this. Focus on the fundamentals. Yeah, right. You know, and I know you said that so many times. Sure. And the challenge is, is that again, that the the TV shows and the movies they show all the high flying cool stuff, mm-hmm. right? They show the guy jumping out of the back of a C seventeen on full oxygen, <laughs> you know, with fins strapped. Sure, Mission Impossible. Yeah, that's right. And the reality is, is what you don't see is the daily fundamentals. Now. Listen, in my business today, man, I got plenty of room for improvement. And it is a mindset. It's a humble mindset of recognizing that you have not arrived. Mm-hmm. You have never arrived. You are constantly getting better. Mm-hmm. And that takes a degree of humility because you can do multiple deployments. You can have all these accolades. You can get some medal for doing something amazing or get this award or recognition. And you've got to remember, man, you know what? I mean, today, I'm going back to focusing on the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to think, hey, I just want to go jump out of the airplane. But really what I need to do, and like, you know, when we went to the range that time a few years ago with my dad, what did we do? We were shooting at the three-yard line. Mm-hmm. And I go to the gun range all the time. And, you know, Brian, I can shoot pretty well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I see all these guys, you know, one arm, and they're having fun. Sure. Okay, but yeah. but they're shooting out at 25 and 50 yards. And most of them have got, you know, I'm over there shooting at the three-yard line, and they 
They have no idea. Right. They have no idea who I am, and I don't care. That's not a big deal to me, you know. But I mean, but I'm over there shooting at the three yard line. Just so you know, if I can bring a little realism here, when you're shooting, everybody in the gun range stops because they're watching how you do what you do the way you do it. So, but it's that mastery of those fundamentals that looks extraordinary. That's right. Now, the dynamic for you is, and and again, I don't know how far we go down this path or not, but you know, you had a very unique scenario on how you transitioned out of being a SEAL. And, you know, I don't know if you want to delve into the Michael Monsoor thing at all, you know, sure. at this time, but Michael Monsoor, who got the Medal of Honor. Right. And who just had a magnificent ship commissioned in his name, was in your platoon. You right. guys were close friends. Why don't you touch on that story a little bit for the folks back home? Because this is another, the price that's paid that's often forgotten in these things. Yeah. So just to kind of set the stage, I mean, my last deployment before I left active duty was uh, to Ramadi, Iraq in the summer of uh, 2006. Mm -hmm. And at the time, just to kind of give you the context, it was the most dangerous place in the war on terror. Afghanistan had waned a little bit. It all ebbed and flowed. But at the time, our focus was Iraq. And within Iraq, Ramadi, which is in Anbar province to the west of Baghdad, was the center of the insurgency. And if you remember Zarqawi, who, mm-hmm. you know, we've since taken him out, mm-hmm. you know, he was the head of al-Qaeda in Iraq. And they had decided that, that Ramadi was going to be the capital for them of their caliphate. And so uh, that's where we went. And uh, when we got there and over the course of that deployment, uh, it was some of the heaviest fighting that any of us had ever seen in the SEAL teams in a long time, including the Army and the Marines that we worked and uh, fought and bled alongside incredible warriors, men and women from all walks of life. And we worked together day by day, city block by city block to take back what was Al-Qaeda-controlled battle space. I mean, to imagine that in this modern day, there was a city where massive parts of it were unpermissible, denied battle space, where the enemy had complete freedom of movement. And we worked together to take that back over the course of that deployment. That ultimately led to what is now referred to as the Anbar Awakening Mm -hmm. in the entire turning of the war in Iraq. Michael Mansour was in our platoon, Delta platoon, task unit bruiser, SEAL Team 3. And one of his very last missions before coming back to redeploy or come home. Many of the operations that we did were in support of conventional forces because we were training Iraqi scouts to support conventional forces. Uh, We would provide overwatch and early warning type of um, operations. We'd go out into the city, we'd establish positions to see what was going on in the city and begin ground clearance operations, and we'd provide sniper overwatch support. And Michael Mansour was part of a small element that you know, even though it was really the end of the deployment and um, bags kind of packed and ready to come home, you know, our brothers in, in the Army who were getting ready to do an operation needed that Overwatch support. He and a handful of other guys uh, did this one last operation. And from an unseen location, an insurgent threw a grenade onto the roof. It hit Michael in the chest and landed at his feet. Two of our brothers to his right and left on the roof had nowhere to go. And uh, he he fell on the grenade, smothered the blast, and saved those two other men. Mm. And for his heroic, incredible heroic actions, he was awarded the Medal of Honor, our our nation's highest award. What is a significant nuance of that to get the Medal of Honor is it it isn't just to simply die or to save somebody else. There's some nuances to that. And and one of the things that was unique to his situation was that the other two guys, because of where they were positioned on the roof, had no place to go. And they actually couldn't have gone anywhere. Mm. Not to say there would be really any less that if they had jumped on the grenade. Mm -hmm. But they really didn't have any other choice. Mm -hmm. Where Michael was positioned, 
he actually had a choice. Mm. He had an out. There was a stairwell behind him that he could have dove down. And so because he had a choice but chose this instead, that is why. Mm. That is ultimately what led to him receiving the Medal of Honor and incredible act of heroism. And I, you know, I just think about Michael and, and so many other men and women who have made such incredible sacrifices. And uh, that's part of what drives me to this day. You know, how, you know, our task unit that had over 360 enemy confirmed killed, we have, I mean, a dozen men in our task unit of 32 guys received the Purple Heart were injured in combat. Mm. Multiple Silver Star winners, Bronze Star with V for Valorious Action Under Fire, multiples in that one deployment. It's incredible that someone like me and, and others in our platoon came through unscathed physically. Mm. And it leads me to a spot in my life even today where I go, okay, well, how did I make it through that? Well, when we met, fast forward just a little bit, you had come home just a few days before mm-hmm. for the birth of your child. That's right. Yeah. And so when we met, you just come out of that deployment, you know, all of the dynamics of what you'd experienced starts to unpack. Right. And would it be fair to say when we met, you were dealing with survivor guilt? For sure. At that stage? I mean, you were Absolutely. like, you know, this guy paid the ultimate price and so on and so forth and you had left a couple of days before, and right. no matter how many missions you'd been on and remarkable positions you'd been in, you felt a sense of guilt that you'd made it and he hadn't. For sure. And I wasn't on that mission with my men that day. Mm. And, you know, you can roll us around as many times as you want. I mean, you know, it was the end of the deployment. I just had my second kid born on two kind of back-to-back deployments. It was, hey, your kid was born. Yeah, we're basically done go ahead and go back with a couple other guys who were also back to kind of handle the redeploy. Yeah. And then that mission happens and one of my guys dies and I'm not there. Mm. There's more to that story. God's Mm. got a plan, Mm -hmm. you know, why I was back and what a difference that made for his family. Mm -hmm. But certainly at the time, personally, man, I mean, just a lot of guilt over whether, you know, I should have been there. These are my guys, you know. So let's fast forward here a little bit. We switch gears, you know, here it is. And we're sitting in here and, you know, I don't know about the control room, but I'm sitting here and it's just the average person. We just don't come that face to face. We can see the news and we can hear this stuff. And it's hard to hear. It's hard to hear. You know, you you guys are put in harm's way mm-hmm. and people are going to get their lives taken and one way or the other. And it's it's a big deal. It's one of the reasons why it always seems that folks who have big time military experience who are then involved in politics, sure don't like starting wars for anything because they know the price that's involved and, and everything very true. that pays, you know? 100%. So fast forward a little bit, you decide to, you're going to be a reservist and you're going to transition. How did you end up in the mortgage business? <laughs> you're in Ramadi, <laughs> right. and then you go to the mortgage business. How, how in the world does that happen? Oh, you didn't know that was sort of the natural, <laughs> the progression? natural transition? Yeah, yeah you Someone's trying Seal. to shoot me. Now my the first-time buyer is trying to kill me with a knife, right? <laughs> that's right. You know, uh, I knew a guy. Uh, he had done a few loans for me, and, yeah. you know, he was like, hey, you know, you ought to come work for me. You'll you'll be great at this business, and, you know, th- these guys make, you know, this kind of money. And I was like, wow, great. I mean, it seems like I've got a good uh, transition plan here. Yeah. That was it. I mean, I just, I left and showed up at the office and started trying to do a loan. Right. You know, lucky for me, I, I had a built-in database with some men who trusted me a little bit. Yeah, sure. So started off just doing uh, VA loans for guys in my platoon and guys in the task unit and guys in the team. And that's how it got started. You yeah. know, where I was doing VA loans, well, gosh, but back in those days, nobody was doing them. But. Now, how did you end up at a Buffini event is what I want to know. Oh, so funny. So I met a guy through a guy, Seal Seal. I'm at a bar, of course. Every good story sure, starts yeah, at a bar. Right, you yeah. know. I'm down at a bar talking to a guy about getting out and uh, what are you doing now? You know, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm doing mortgages. He goes, oh, well, you got to go meet this guy, Dwight. He's a SEAL. He does real estate. 
you guys should meet. I'm like, we got his number? No, I don't have his number. He goes, but he's got this house listed down the street. I'm like, got it. Drove down the street, drive around till I find the house, call the number. And I'm like, hey, this guy says we need to meet. And so Dwight and I are working on a deal together. And he is in Hawaii for (laughs) peak. This would be peak 2007. Wow. And I get a call from the borrower who says, hey, you know, we're thinking about this house right here. And we just feel like it's too high. I'm not comfortable writing this much. And I could just tell by what they were saying. I was like, what does Dwight say? I could just tell yeah. they weren't talking to him. Like, well, yeah, yeah we couldn't get a hold of Dwight. Uh, so, you know, the guy who's listening to the house says that he can help. They don't know this yeah, stuff, right? right? So, I don't know. Dwight's available. Let me get him on the phone and got Dwight involved and, uh, you know, kind of save that deal a little bit there. And so Dwight says, hey, listen, I just want to say thanks. I want to bring you to this event. So I want to say it was like May... 2007, wow. Turning Point, San Diego Convention Center. I walk in there. And, and I will tell you, man, to this day, I don't know where my life would be huh. had I not been to that event. And people, real estate agents and loan officers ask me all the time. They're like, you know, one piece of advice, like, you know, I'm getting started. I said, you need to show up at a Buffini event. Yeah. yeah. Well, you got the ball rolling. You set some goals. It was probably helpful, I would imagine, to, to have a, a new picture in mind. Yeah. I set some goals, focus on what could be. Mm-hmm. especially when you're coming off what has been. Yeah. And the key is, and I think you've done a magnificent job where you honor the past. You've been a stalwart in keeping the name and the memory of Michael Mansoor alive yeah. in many uh, facets and, and a lot of the men that served underneath you. But at the same time, you've honored that, you support that, you're still connected to that, but then you built a brand new life for yourself. Yeah, and, and it wasn't easy, I'll tell you. Right. Yeah, a lot of work and so on and so forth. And today, you know, you do a superb job in the mortgage business. I'll give you a shout out. When my own son was buying his first house, I had you do his mortgage for him, and right. I could find no one better. And you did a superb job helping that millennial couple buy a house. So let's just talk a little bit about this. Now you're in a job that everyone listening can relate to. Right. Uh, you're in the mortgage business. You got to do lead generation. You got to promote. You got to write personal notes. You're doing the calls. You've been working our system for 12 years, yeah. uh, almost 13 years now. So you do all that stuff. You got to do mortgages. You got to close loans. You got to work with people. How do you apply what you learn from the SEALs into this dynamic today of serving people? Have you made the transition? I mean, if I could boil it down to one thing, it's, it's work hard and do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's not pretty mm-hmm. all the time. I mean, I don't hit my numbers all the time. I don't write as many personal notes as I should write. But you just got to get up every day and make some forward progress. Mm-hmm. And inch by inch, if you have to, crawling through the mud mm-hmm. with blisters and skin, knees, and elbows, mm-hmm. inch by inch. Someone would go, oh, my gosh, how could this be hard for a Navy SEAL? It's hard. Right? I mean, you know, you've been on deployment. You've had all these missions that have been covered in these yeah. movies, whether it's Act of Valor or these and that. They're covering actual missions you were on and now you got you know you're helping someone buy a condo how in the heck could that be hard right yeah well because you got a lot of demands everybody wants something slightly different right some people want to be texted some people want to be called some people yeah. want to be called back immediately some people you call them back too fast you know i mean so it's very easy for people to say you didn't do this right or you didn't do that right mm-hmm. and what the success looks like to me is you make mistakes all the time and the key is that you got to learn from them and just do your darn best to not make the same mistake again. Mm-hmm. And when you do make a mistake, you own it. Yeah. You admit it. I mean, just to be a little transparent with you, okay? I had a client recently who uh, ended up going with another lender. Mm-hmm. Can you believe it? Yeah. Ah, he's crazy, obviously. Right, yeah. Now, now, this is the reality, right? So I said, hey, man, could I get your feedback on where we missed with you? 
Okay? You ready for this? I mean, I'm being real transparent. He says, you know, Andrew, to be honest with you, you know, we had to sell our house and we wanted to buy another one and, and we were trying to see if we could do a 100% financing program and buy that before we sold. And, you know, I asked you about that and I just felt like that you belittled my idea of that. Hmm. Um, I just felt a little talked down to. Great feedback, right? I mean, it's great right. it's Great that someone told you to, well, something like that. And so here's the thing. The reality is, is that he was going to go way over his head doing that. Sure. He was going to pay closing costs twice because he wanted to buy that, sell that, refinance back into a lot. And so I was trying to say, look, you're going to spend a lot more money on this and you're going to get over your head. And so I'm trying to, right. but how he heard it. Yeah. And so he gave me that feedback. And can I just tell you, man, that was hard to hear. Sure. But what success to me looks like is going, I wrote back to him and I said, wow, you know, first of all, thank you for that feedback. I am deeply apologetic that I came across that way to you the last thing I would ever sure. want to do. But I appreciate that because, gosh, who knows if maybe the way I was describing something, somebody else perceived it the same way. Right. So that's hard. That's hard to hear sometimes, but, gosh, what an opportunity to get better. Well, humble pie is the pastry that's never tasty, but if we don't learn from our mistakes, no. we just keep making them again. And it's like, you know, that's the dynamic where you had a good intention, a good motivation. Yep. You go, oh, I got to be more skilled. I have to let this guy yep. feel heard. He actually was, his recommendation was not in his best interest. Correct. And you were shining the light on him, but like, okay, I got to do that a different way. Yeah. And it's powerful stuff. You've really done a, a great job with this. You've built yourself a lovely business. You do a great job working by referral. You've built a great network of real estate agents you work with. A lot of them in our system that they'll be cheering you on today. Sure. As they, many of them don't know this other side of your life, and they'll be listening right. to the podcast going, what the heck? You know? <laughs> right. Or maybe they won't talk back to you again you know, no. or, or <laughs> give you grief. you know. <laughs> but um, this other dynamic, of, of you've been so faithful, you've been so consistent, you've done such a great job. And translating, because a lot of people have a hard time. I have friends who were in the NFL who couldn't transition to civilian life. Sure. I have people who were successful in one area, and then they want to transition. A stay-at-home mom... And all her kids, you know, my bride's facing it. She's homeschooled to six kids. And now the kids are getting ready to, you know, the last two are getting ready to go to college. And like, okay, she got to transition now yeah. to this new phase of life. And uh, so many people face this type of transition. And you've done a, a super good job of it. it it's an amazing thing. Let's just do this for a sec. I want to shift gears for a sec. If you were to give one piece of advice to people in regards to serving people, in regards to customer service and really doing a job, what would be the Navy SEALs mindset towards serving a customer? Put someone else first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the relationship's more important to me than right. the commission every time. Well, Michael Mansour, you know, he paid obviously the ultimate price, but he put others' interests before his own. That's it. And that's really the magic for all of us, isn't it? And it is. The person shouldn't buy the house. I've certainly talked people out of buying a house as respectfully as I could right. over time. And I'm, I know you've done the same with mortgages and whatever else. We always finish up with the rapid fire. You've listened to a lot of our podcasts, so you kind of know a little bit what's coming. But I'm going to give it to you anyway. First one is, uh, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? Stay humble. Stay hungry. Nice. Who'd you get that from, by the way? Teams. Yeah. Probably, probably a little bit of Jocko Willink influence yeah. in my life. Good. Too. Yeah. Uh, Jocko, he does a hell of a job with his uh, podcast, and what a great guy he is. Uh, what one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? To get real specific, I'm a pilot, and I'm working on my instrument rating. Nice. So I'm working on that. Come on. Yeah. Here we go. Rating. Nothing like it. What book has been most instrumental in your life? 
probably think and grow rich. Nice. I mean, the Bible for sure is the most, yeah. um, but in a more expansive, you know, think and grow rich, sure. uh, maybe more wider appeal. Nice. Mm-hmm. What is, you got the kids in the car and your dad's got his jam on. What song, what artist? What? Oh, man. Just about anything from the Rocky Four soundtrack. Come on. Here you know, go. <laughs> Burning Heart. <laughs> you know, all the Survivor stuff, you know? Oh, yeah. Like the whole album, like on. on my workout mix. Here we yeah. go. Now, you're, you're not destroying the image people have in Navy SEALs here, I was saying. You get, it's all good. If there's a movie you're scrolling through the channels and it's on, you stop and watch it. What is it? Rudy. Come on, Rudy. Rudy hundreds sure. of times, man. Rudy, Rudy I mean, could have made the seals, right? Never gave up. Who knows? Man, who right? knows? I mean, but his story is, you know, at least from the movie, was always been a ton of inspiration for sure. me, too. Right? It was like, hey, give me a shot. You yeah. know, it's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. Well, you certainly lived that. One last one, kind of a bonus one. What one thing's on the bucket list still to be done? My bucket list is, uh, ooh, it's kind of risky putting it out there like Come that. Come on, here right? we go. Mount Everest. Wow. Yeah. So, really? Yep. And I've got this written out, and, um, you know, I've got to plan this a little bit around uh, my kids, you know, ages. You sure. know, I, I can't really afford to do it or take the time away that it takes to prepare for that okay. with the ages of where they are. So, right now, I'm planning this at, I'm 40 right now. Yeah. The goal is probably at around 50. Great. So right now, to work towards that goal, what I've got to do is I've got to stay healthy, I've got to stay in shape and uninjured for the next yep. 10 years. And make enough net yeah. income so that you can yeah. do that. First of all, I want you to know I love you very much. You're thank a great you. man, and I'm proud to call you my friend. I want to thank you for your service to this country, and irrespective of how people view wars and the war and this and that and the other, you guys went in a harm way to deal with, and you did see the face of evil on many occasions. Indeed. And then you represent a whole bunch of guys I'm very appreciative to and very thankful to. And even the folks that aren't thankful, I know their lives have been blessed and benefited because of you guys. Yeah. And uh, I talked to a young man who's recently became a Navy SEAL, and he said to me, I'm willing to fight and die for the people who will burn the very flag that I wear on my uniform. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's uh, kind of the epitome of democracy. So this has been a treat. This has been a treat, and it's been a long time coming, and I thank you for it. I, I thank you for your service. I thank you for your continued service in the mortgage business today, and I thanks for giving a little insight today on how maybe for all of us, making a commitment to not give up, making a commitment to persevere no matter what, to have that vision in front of our eyes, and that no matter what any of us are going through, we can all, we've all been through hell weeks. Sure, absolutely. Know? And we can continue to persevere through and there's something good coming on the other side. So thanks for being our guest today. It's really been special. I'm going to throw it over to my own, the Navy SEAL of producing, Mr. David Lally. Although he's more like the SEAL that eats fish and claps his hands and you put a uh, ball on his nose. But uh, over to you, David. Take it away from here. Yeah, not sure what to say to that. I did enjoy the fish tacos today, though. Thanks, boss. Thanks so much to you, Andrew. Uh, Great to have a legend in the studio today sharing powerful content on what it means to persevere and stick to the fundamentals. I hope you all enjoyed the interview as much as we did here in the control room. I have a couple of notes we received recently. Tim Moore from Louisville, Kentucky. Mr. Buffini, I love listening and re-listening to your podcast. You've got great stuff on every one of them. Thanks, Tim. Josh Martin in Mancos, Colorado. I wanted to express my deepest gratitude for you and your podcast. The Brian Buffini Show has changed my life. The content is amazing, and I still not have listened to a full show. Brian, I can tell you, you are what you teach. I could write for days of all the things I've learned from you and your company. Thanks again. Well, we appreciate having you along for the ride, Josh. And Sarah Cazenza wrote, Hello from the middle of the Pacific Ocean. This is a new one by us. 
I'm a 21-year-old midshipman at the United States Merchant Marine Academy in Kings Point, New York. My boyfriend, Zach, has become a listener by default as I play your podcast during study sessions, workouts, or in the car. During my last port call on the phone, he told me he was listening to your Lou Holtz interview when two classmates stopped by the room. They ended up sitting for a couple of hours as he showed them a few of our favorite shows. It touched my heart to know that not only was Zach listening without me, but that it was being spread to more of my friends, even while I'm at sea. Through your podcasts, I've seen a significant improvement in myself over the past year. I've set 10-day goals, created rituals and routines, and done a lot of self-reflection on what I am passionate about and strive to do with my career. I know the effect your messages have put on my life, and I only hope that my friends and family will share in the progress as well. I'm a better friend, student, sister, daughter, girlfriend, and shipmate because of it. And for that, I thank you. I will continue to share your information and look forward to the podcast to come. Fantastic, Sarah. Thanks so much for your letter. And keep the stories coming. Maybe I'll read it out on an upcoming show. If you're not already a Buffini Insider, visit thebrianbuffinishow.com to sign up today. And as always, I'll leave you with Brian's mum for a little Irish blessing. May the road rise up to meet you. And may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time. (laughs) 